This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Thomas Lavin, the founder of the Los Angeles multi-line showroom that bears his name. Thomas got his start working in another showroom, Needle Faucher, where he honed his aesthetic and developed a keen instinct for sales. In 2000, he went out on his own, and over the past two decades has built a thriving business, representing some of the finest brands in the industry. I spoke with Thomas about the pressures on the multi-line model, how he's teaching the next generation of designers to sell to their clients, and whether industry pricing should be more transparent. This podcast is brought to you by The Bruno Effect, a new online marketplace giving interior designers access to the world's finest furniture and collectibles. Launching later this fall with thousands of pieces from vetted dealers across the globe, the marketplace is the destination for high-end antique, vintage, and contemporary design. What makes the Bruno effect so distinctive? They're on a mission to liberate the design community. As a family-run business, they put relationships first, fostering transparency and open communication. Meaning once you've found your perfect piece, you can connect directly with the dealer to discuss the item and purchase on your own terms. Sign up now at thebrunoeffect.com to discover a new way of sourcing. This podcast is also brought to you by luxury home retailer Ben Solmani. Renowned for his iconic rugs, Ben Solmani brings the perfect showroom experience to your fingertips via bensolmani.com. The site offers an impressive shopping experience of exquisite, bespoke quality, hand-woven rugs, furniture, textiles, and decor of unparalleled craftsmanship. Courtesy is given to the trade with a designated site and preferred designer pricing. Visit bensolmani.com to learn more. And now, on with the show. Last time you and I spoke, you had mentioned that you had recently taken on some new some new lines fairly fairly recently yes yes no we've we've gone through we're going through this really wonderful um transformation and metamorphosis right now we have um remodeled our textile department and wall covering department in our pacific design center showroom and it, we've created lifestyle boutiques for some of our brands that have been with us for such a long time galbraith and paul Christopher Farr Cloth, which was designed by Kit Kemp. We also created a Christopher Farr Cloth boutique in our Laguna showroom. So we're very excited about that. In terms of new collections for us, we recently brought on the really extraordinary bespoke company Fremontal. It's a uh, company I've always wanted to represent. And, you know, incredible. sometimes the timing is right. And you should see what we did for installations here. They have a pattern called ochre. And it's very sort of 1930s modern. And it was going in the sample department. And my mother is in charge of the fabric realm at our PDC showroom. And so they asked, you know, how does mom dress? And I said, she's always in Dries. Um, you know, Monday through Thursday when she's here, she's in trees <laughs> and Philippe Ferrandi's necklaces. And if you if you know those, they're just gargantuan uh, crystals and enamel. And yes. She's got an alligator that hugs her neck and she's got a uh, monkey that hangs off a swing. So they did gold leaf and black for her. So my mother is framed by this really outstanding paper. 
How fantastic. Tell me what was driving the, the change that you made, uh, lifestyling uh, some of the lines. Tell me what the idea was behind that and, and, and why you wanted to do that. You know what? We remodeled and expanded our Pacific Design Center location a few years ago. And my sister, who's my second, she's the numbers person and the operations person. And she said one day, she's like, I think we should do boutiques. Yeah, it's a great idea. But we couldn't figure out what it looked like. And one day I was walking around the showroom and I was looking at our end walls and I realized that they were completely unengaging and that we had no vistas, nothing that was pulling you down. And so I just had this aha moment and it took four years to get there. Once we had it, that's, that's what did it. And Rosemary had wanted to do something special. So I called Rosemary mm. and she and I shared the love of fashion. And she's like, I'm doing a fashion stand. So it really came together that way. And I think the challenge now for some of my colleagues who represent these collections is they're going to be pressured to put in boutiques now. But it is a game changer because it really lets the designers and their clients see these collections in a new way and make the conversation more meaningful. Interesting, and and you mentioned you mentioned Kit Kemp, who I share your your admiration for for her as a as a treat. Recently, when New York was starting to sort of reopen, I my wife and I stayed at the Whitby Hotel in in New York, one of Kit's incredible spaces, and uh, every detail from the trim on the curtains to the incredible headboard fabric choice, uh, everything that she that she does is just multi layered and uh, and so thoughtful, and how great that she. She got very involved, it sounds like. She really is at the place in life where she, I mean, I don't know, like, it looks like she could just say, hey, I'm, I'm going to go hang out, you know, and wherever for the rest of her life. And she's right. in the trenches. She's working with her team. She's creating. She's doing the sketches. She's like, I think you should put mannequins here. She designs it. And then she gets so excited and brings the whole team on. And she's the most excited of all. So I just I just hold her in such admiration that she's involved with every level of her business. Well, and and as you say, I mean, she looks like she could she could knock off anytime she wants to. And And people think you could, too. Thomas, people think, oh my gosh, he's been <laughs> right. He's been so successful. Oh he, could, he he could just give it all up, right? Do you feel that way? I don't feel like I could. I still like, you know, I just, I learned this term recently, hypervigilance. Did we talk about that the other day? Yeah, well, I love it. Yes. <laughs> that seems, that seems so perfect, but explain for listeners hypervigilance. So dear listeners, I discovered, like I've always been super OCD about every detail and I discovered the term the other day called hypervigilance and it's where you are so focused on whatever it is. So the example that I used was being at lunch with, with friends and clients and like knowing what everyone ordered and making sure the waiter is bringing everything out in a timely manner and, you know, letting them know if they're not. So that's how I am in the business. I'm so aware of everything that's happening in the company as much as I can be, because it's a bigger company that I actually couldn't stop working. And I don't know but I suppose, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I could stop working. I mean, I don't get the sense that you could. I don't get the sense that you could. But, you know, you, you talk, so you talk about hypervigilance and you, and you, and, and how you sort of run the, run the business, but you weren't always buttoned up in the, in the way that you are now. And, 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 I, and I, I sort of. <laughs> that is the best, that is the best lead in. <laughs> Let's let's go back a little bit. Oh my god. Right? Let let's let's tell listeners a little bit about the about the younger Thomas Lavin who 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 might not always have have managed his, his money as responsibly as he as he does now, right? And and some some lessons learned uh, along the way. So what what should we what should we share with with people about the about the earlier days for for you? You know, I was a really great student in high school. Once I got into college, like all bets were off. Like I discovered, you know, 
booze, clubs, boys. And I had my, my godfather's 1967 VW bug, which was just, it was such a disaster. <laughs> but, you know, this was the 80s and everybody wanted wheels. And so I had my car. And at some point, the, um, the clubbing was too good and school was <laughs> not fun. So I, I moved to a studio on the beach in Venice. And I got a job working for a design firm. I was, I was the receptionist from 8 to 12. And it was $10 an hour. And I would sort of crawl out of my studio and I would go over and I'd answer phones. So um, I realized I wasn't going to be able to live off $40 a day. I went back to my parents and I said, hey, you know, I think I should go back to school. And I was like, that's a great idea. So you pulled yourself together. Eventually, yeah. And so UCLA and, and you ended up sort of shifting gears with what you thought you were going to study originally. T- tell us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I went in studying music. I wanted to be a concert pianist. Yeah. And again, you have to love the people in your life. I, I loved playing the piano. I was good enough. And I asked my piano teacher one day, I said, do you think that I could concertize? And he so sweetly looked at me without missing a beat. And he said, you can do whatever you want to, which I realized later was no. But he was <laughs> going to say no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you hang in there. You hang in there, kiddo. <laughs> so I started being, I started off as a music major and realized it was really too complicated. Mm. So I switched to art history and loved it. Thought I might become a curator or do something in the art realm. When I graduated, I had to get a job. So I ended up getting a job as an administrative assistant for an event planning company and had the best boss ever. Her name was Rhonda Marco. And she taught me how to show up on time, how to complete work. So when she left, I left. And then I got a job working for a publicist. And he was very sophisticated and very elegant and very worldly. And his best friend was the the legendary, indomitable, and talented Jerry Lean, the founder of Dennis and Lean. So once in a while, I had the good fortune to be invited to lunch with them. And listening to Jerry Lean and my former boss talk about design and just periods, materiality, pieces, the clientele they worked with, they were just, it was to see their passion and their excitement. I was like, oh, this design thing, this seems like it's really interesting. Um, so I really started reading about it. I started really looking at the magazines, picking up the books, and my curiosity was piqued. My boss was kind of difficult, and so we had a little bit of falling out, and we, he summarily fired me. His direction was go work in interior design. So this was in 1994. And in those days, we had newspapers. And so I saw an ad in the newspaper. And for $35, I could join an employment agency in the Pacific Design Center. And they would find me a job. So I paid my 35 bucks. I took in my resume. And I got a job working with a design firm in Santa Monica. Tell me how that evolved for you. Because ultimately, you, you make your way to working for, for Needler. And I want to hear sort of what led up to that. Well, you, so I was working for the design firm and I was the, I was Krista's assistant. So I really wasn't involved with design. I was helping her out and I loved her and I loved the creativity. I loved being in the creativity, but I wanted to also have the creative experience. At some point there was a little bit of a slowdown in the, in the industry. So I left and I ended up getting a job working for a fortune 500 company and <gasps> cried to work and from work every single day. The anxiety was extraordinary. And um, Krista called me one day and she said, there's a job opening in sales. Are you interested? And I said, absolutely. And so I applied at Needler Fauchere and I'd never been in the PDC before. And I entered in on what was then the Brunswick side. And as I walked towards Needler Fauchere, I literally started shrinking. It was like, I was so overwhelmed <laughs> by the, the grandness of the building. And I met with um, the founder, Harry Luenda, who was the most elegant and the most sophisticated and the most intimidating. And he interviewed me and it was August. I remember it was August because I was sweating and he was wearing white linen with, um, I swear they were pince-nez on the end of his nose. <laughs> and um, I did not get the job. And so I was really disappointed. So I kept driving to my my horrible 
corporate job in Inglewood. And two weeks later, Needler for Shercone said, we have an opening. And so I went and just in the first day I was in heaven, I couldn't believe how gorgeous the furniture was, being in this culture. So um, I found out years later that after two weeks, they were going to fire me because I hadn't sold anything. And the guy whose place I was taking said, please don't. I'm starting my design firm. I got to go. Once he left, I rose up. I was selling. Um, George Master had just come on and he had this vision to bring on Holly Hunt, who was bringing on Lieg. And so it was a really heady time to be in the industry and to be you know, working at Needler for Share. And I was the first salesperson to sell Lieg, which, you know, come back to 20 years later is now we represent them. Yes. So I love this sort of trajectory about how things go. But I stayed at Needler for six years. And when my sister and I were little, we used to play office in the backyard. I was the boss. She was the secretary. So I think I was preordained from the age of <laughs> you know six. I would have my own company. So I started working on a business plan and got with the SBA. And whenever I'm taking students around, I say the SBA is one of the greatest unknown resources for entrepreneurs. I went in every week wrote a business plan. The counselor handed it back to me and he said, you can now go and get your get a loan. So I took it to a bank. And the way that um, the SBA worked back then anyways, you had to fund the first half. And um, you know, I called my my father got the plan and he called me and said, This is amazing. He said, I think this is great. He said, I, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna fund this. So now it's like super exciting. You know, it's like I've got some money. I had met Gary Hutton, who's one of my dearest friends and mentors in San Francisco. I met him at a party in Therian, and um he asked what I did for a living. And I said, you know, I'm opening a showroom. I didn't tell him that I was actually working for somebody else. And we chatted for a while. And Gary said, I like you. He said, you can have my line. And I'm like, well, this is nice. I'm like, who's Gary Hutton? And he said, also, you should call these people. So everybody I called, they're like, oh, Gary's going with you. We're going with you. So it really, if it weren't for Gary, I wouldn't be here. So I had the money and I had the lines and I had to find the space. And I couldn't rent in the PDC because it was out of my budget. So I found a little space on Beverly Boulevard and it was $9,000 a month. And I, I thought I'm never going to be able to afford that. So I negotiated with the landlord. And as I shared with you last week, it was one of the greatest negotiations of my life because I got him down from 9,000 to 9,000. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he didn't budge. He didn't budge. I was such, I was so naive. So I got the lease and I called my mother crying. And I'm like, I can't sign this. I said, how am I going to pay the rent? And she said, oh, honey, she said, you might as well. She said, you, you don't want to be 65 and look back and wish that you could have and didn't. You know, pay attention to your mothers, everyone. Mothers know. And of course, the cosmic, you know, fulfillment is that my mom and I have had the pleasure of working together now for 20 years. Well, and, and I want to get into that with you. What does it take these days? So, I mean, in the beginning, your rent was $9,000. Yes, <laughs> it's quite a bit more today. We don't we don't have to tell people exactly <laughs> what it is, but it's but it, but it's a it's a large it's a large number. So, what does it take to run a multi line showroom well? You know what? I think it's a skill set that any smart business person or any successful business person has. Look, I have an incredible team. Whatever I don't know, I surround myself with smart people. So I have incredibly smart people around me. I am not attached to my belief in something. I'm not attached to my understanding of something. I may be a slow study. I may not get things. It took me a long time to understand retained earnings. Like I just, I couldn't get it. And then I took an MBA class at UCLA. And I'm like, I came in one day and I said to my sister, I said, I've got retained earnings. So I think- Well, so and tell the listeners what retained earnings means. and, and Retained that- earnings is the value of the company over time. So every year, if the company is making a profit, you grow. 
but also, and so because I'm not an accountant, it's also, I experienced it as a completely made up number because it's not really there. It's, it's right. right. It's sort of like what you, the value of, of what over time and, and looking at it and plugging profits back in. It's in theory, it's what's accumulating in the, in the worth of the business. Right? You wouldn't even know that I actually understood it by that lousy explanation. <laughs> it's one of those things that's like, I get it, but I, I don't know if I can talk about it. I look at it, I'm like, oh, look Conceptually, at that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But it does make you feel good about the business as you see that retained earnings number growing. Yeah. Uh, but it only comes if you're continuing to channel the money back into the, into the business. Right. But I think, I think the skills that you got to have is be willing to be wrong. You know, it's like sometimes when we're talking at numbers, because it's not what I studied, it takes longer. So it's really, it's really a humility about knowledge, surrounding yourself with smart people. What I tell my team and I, and I tell the students when they come in, I think the most important trait that one can have is curiosity and desire to learn. So I'm curious. I want to learn. My boyfriend has told me that I ask lots and lots and lots of questions. And I, I realize I do because I want to know about everything. So in the business, it's the same thing. And I think that's why we've been able to have success over 21 years is engaging and looking and turning it upside down. And, um, and you know, of course, also making mistakes. Which one does constantly, right? I mean, constantly. No, I was in a meeting once. And I was very strident about something. I was like, I, I thought they had made a mistake, and I was like, I got it's right here. It's fact. And I got off, and I realized that I had made a mistake. And I was, oh man, I was absolutely <laughs> beside myself. So I had to call and apologize. I mean, some people might not have called. Maybe I don't know. I just called right. to like clean it up and be done and be like, okay, I <laughs> made a boo boo. We're taking a quick break to remind listeners to visit thebrunoeffect.com, a new online marketplace launching later this fall, where interior designers can source high-end furniture and collectibles on their own terms. A treasure trove of antique, vintage, and contemporary design, the platform showcases thousands of the finest pieces from vetted dealers across the globe. More than just a marketplace, the Bruno Effect is a hub of inspiration, with curated collections from world-renowned designers and the latest stories from the world of design. Sign up now at thebrunoeffect.com to start your new sourcing journey. In your time at Neither Share, you became quite a good salesperson. Yes. And what do you attribute that to? How did, how did, how did you learn to become such an effective seller? And that was, that was part of, if I, if I understand, what gave you the confidence to, to go out and, and sort of start your, your own showroom after, after that? Curiosity. Um, same thing that helps me run the business. You know, wanting to know about the, the, the products that we were selling, wanting to know about what the projects are that the designers are working on, wanting to know how I can solve problems. And just this, you know, this intrinsic need to serve people. Like really, I'm a people pleaser. I want to take care of people. When I was a kid, my parents used to have these just epic cocktail parties and my mother would give me coaster patrol. So my job was to go around the house and make sure there were no drinks on tables. <laughs> so, but in doing that, I also really got to know, you know, my parents' friends who were obviously, you know, a generation older and just got into like making their drinks and taking care of them. And I think, you know, this level of service has stayed with me forever such that, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a desk on the sale floor in the, in the PDC showroom and I get up and help people 
you know, fine fabrics and I love it. And, you know, if I'm really busy, then I'll turn it over to, to one of the experts on the team. But it still gives me great joy to help people find the right gray velvet. How long after you opened on the street did you finally make the move to the PDC? You mentioned 94 was when you sort of went out on your own. When, when did you move into the into the PDC? So actually, so I was at Needler in 94. Then I opened on Beverly on March 6, 2000. Oh, okay. And uh, in 2004, Steve Fredericks called me from Coen Brothers Realty, and he said, I understand you're doing something that's really cool. He said, we want you in our building. And I never thought I could be in the PDC. And I was like, I would love to be in the building. You know, I work with Steve Fredericks, who has been a, a great champion for the past 16 years. And he and Mr. Cohen made it possible that I could get in this building. And we've uh, grown over the past week. So we came in here 2005, had a few expansions to now we're one of the you know larger leaseholders in the building. One of the things that you mentioned earlier that I that I wanted to touch on was when you first came to the PDC and you, you mentioned you sort of came in the Brunchwig side. Back in the day, design centers used to have these big anchor tenants, right? And 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 Brunchwig was, was certainly one of them. Scala Madre was often another. Uh, and and I feel like that isn't as much the case to today. And many of those companies have been consolidated into sort of bigger sort of corporate brands in, in many cases. It seems like there are many fewer sort of big lines and companies like that. Has that consolidation had an impact on the business, on your business, on, on, on the industry in general, do you think? That's such an interesting question. I think that um, I think there has to be impact. When I was working for the the design firm as the receptionist, there were there were a pair of architects that worked there, and I would hang out with them. And oh, if I was in my twenties, they were in their fifties, and they'd had they'd been architects for thirty years. And I said, I'm never doing anything for thirty years. So here I am, thirty years later, and I feel <laughs> like some of the conversations we have in the industry are recurring conversations. And this is sort of in that realm. I think it's this ebb and flow and change. I think as you know, someone like Brunswick you know, gets absorbed or Donga gets absorbed, then you have new companies coming out. So we continue, even though we have some very important internationally recognized companies, we still launch new companies. We still work with with artisans that are coming up. We work with with artists that we believe have a, have a voice and that we think they're going to be something. And I think you see that across the industry, new showrooms opening up, um, new people taking chances. So I think that as humans, I think we have this drive to create. So I think what it does is it keeps the business going. I think it keeps it, it keeps it interesting. It keeps it fresh. It's not without its challenges, whether you talk about the advent of retail, the rise of digital platforms, the constant education of the consumer. We have things that we have to adapt and change, and we're not the fastest industry at it. But I think <laughs> that um, creativity and moving forward is always at the core. Well, so you mentioned the rise of, of retail. You mentioned e-commerce as well. But let's let's stay with retail for, for a moment because I know that one of the things that you try and focus on with designers is sort of educating them about the difference between buying retail and, and, and buying from you. But tell me in your in your own words sort of how you do try and sort of combat the rise of, of retail and the RHs of the of the world. A few different ways. We have one designer that we were working with, lovely and talented and elegant. And my sales guy kept quoting things and not closing. And I said, what do you attribute this inability to close the sale? And he said, I don't think they know how to sell our product. And I said, well, what are you going to do about that? So he took her to lunch, had a conversation, talked about how to close our product. Because at the end of the day, designers are really 
their business is really closing. They're like, they're the closers for the industries. Yes, they're solving problems and realizing visions, but for them to move their own businesses forward, they've got to close as much as they can. So what we started doing, especially with younger designers, teaching them how to close the sale and talk about the difference in quality. That company you mentioned, their their quality is not good. Their prices <laughs> are not so low. Their lead times now are longer than ours. So we constantly want to share with our designers language and buzzwords that they can share with the consumer about the quality. And it historically required a bit more of an investment, but I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that some retail now is is priced commensurately. Well, so, and and is that part of the closing language that you try and arm designers For with? For sure. I mean, what, what do you find really makes the, the, the difference? For a while, it was about quality because there's such mm. a, there's such a disparity in quality. Um, now the easy conversation is lead time, you know, because the retail, a lot of retail lead times are running longer than our bespoke lead times. You know, it's like also individuality. It's like, what do you, what, at the end of the day, your clients are buying these extraordinary houses. They're driving Aston Martin's Maseratis, you know, they're carrying Hermes uh, bags. It's like, what do they want their house to look like? Do they really want you know, Banana Republic furniture in their house. No, they really don't. <laughs> so sometimes it's really speaking to who the client is. Do you find that generationally there's there's been a shift? So I feel a generation ago, it was much easier to say, well, okay, the difference between retail and, and bespoke. But do you find those worlds have sort of melded together more and there's it's harder to distinguish or, or what do you find you know it's and this is and this goes back to what i was sort of saying about being in the business for 30 years like now we're watching all these young people come up right and we have the opportunity to imbue our wisdom for it's you know it's always worth whatever you pay for it right <laughs> <laughs> um and and Sometimes I feel like in an industry we talk about, oh, there's no young designers. There's so many young designers. We have so many young designers that are, you know, in their late 20s, 30s, 40s. It's really exciting to see because there was a moment I was like, oh, my God, if I get my end of the line. So I don't see our industry going anywhere. I think it's just it's constant engagement. And our at the end of the day, our business where we sit is relationships. It's, you know, people come, there's 20 places they can go buy Grey Velvet. They come to us because my team is taking good care of them. They know me. They know that we're going to back it up with extraordinary service. And and we, we teach that to the, to the young designers also. And we're fun. Which is a big part of it. I mean, all kidding aside. Yeah. I mean, you do, have, you do have to make it fun, right? You got to make mean, it fun. It's like people come in to see what I'm wearing because I don't have a dog. So it's like, is he wearing, <laughs> is, is he wearing a kilt or a tunic today? <laughs> That's reason enough to come to the PDC. I mean, I hope so. Just to see what Thomas is wearing. Hello, listeners. Dennis Scully here. I'm so thankful that you spend part of your day hearing from me. And now I'd love to hear from you. We're conducting our first ever listener survey, and we need your feedback. Let us know what you like about the show and how we can improve it. I promise it'll only take a minute. Even better, we're giving away a free membership to Business of Homes Insider Program to one listener who takes the survey. Check it out at businessofhome.com slash podsurvey. That's businessofhome.com slash P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Okay, let's get back to the show. The other issue that you mentioned, and you're you're so right to point out that our industry has has been slow to to evolve when it when it comes to technology, and a lot of these e-commerce sites have gotten very far ahead of where the industry is. You're looking to make a lot more investments in technology today. What's on the priority list for you? 
Well, we, we recently upgraded our website, which we really needed to do. Like sometimes, you know, you, you, like what do they say? A goldfish can't describe its own water. So we had our website and you could shop on it. And one of our suppliers called me one day and he's like, your website absolutely sucks. And my product is <laughs> lousy. I was like, you are totally right. So <laughs> we have since like upgraded it. It seems like it's working. It says it's shoppable. You know, people say it's shoppable. The, the suppliers seem happy with the presentation of the product. You know, the things that we want to do, you know, we want to get our own level of e-commerce on there so people could buy accessories if they want to. I know that um, one of our competitors is going online so you can actually buy furniture. I don't know how we do that yet because of the business we're in. It's as an agent, it becomes more difficult and everything we have is so bespoke. But I think if we can, if we can get our fabric loaded on so designers can actually shop fabric, which I know some of the bigger corporate fabric companies already do. And if we can um, create some kind of e-commerce for a different kind of engagement, I think that are the next steps. We have the ability to do an e-chat, which um, my team all cried over. So we're still using phones and email (laughs) until further notice. Um, What I'm actually the most excited about is our phone system, because it's going to actually push calls through people's iPhones which is great because people are on the, we're so busy that people are on the floor. So let them see who's calling in. It feels very, feels very 22nd century. <laughs> so it can follow them wherever they are and, they and, are. and find them. Okay. I mean, I'm curious what your trade partners are asking you for. I know so many, so many fabric companies, for example, are trying to show availability and stock levels and, and, and all of that. Is that something that some of your partners are pushing for or, or what are they asking you for? Well, they, you know, so many of them have that now. We still have some mm-hmm. where we have to email and hear back the next day, which feels so wonderfully analog. I actually appreciate it. My team does not. <laughs> but yes, I think like ultimately once we can download all that onto our computer system, it's going to make the shopping experience for the night owls even even more effective. You know, one of the conversations we're having in the industry now that we can't get buy-in is showing prices on the website because we think that would be, you know, some of us think that that would be a great way to just let designers and even consumers know like where range you're in. And but there's still some, you know, people who want to keep it a bit more secretive and a bit under the radar. And I feel like we're all so much more educated on things we never knew that I think it's important to be as, in, as transparent as possible. So, so you'd like that. You I would, would like, like to that. be able to show prices. Okay. And you so talk to a lot more people than I do. What do people want to do with that? You, are they up for that or are they like, no way? So it's so funny that you say that, Thomas, because of course, when I talk to them, they say, oh, yes, that has to happen. But then you get them all together in a room. And they can't all collectively agree. I mean, to talk to poor Stefan Silverman at the DFA, or I mean, you know, he, he's he's been trying to make it happen for ages and did it himself back in the day when he was with Dongia. And then Dongia said, please take those prices right. down. Uh, and then you see what happened to them. But, uh, <laughs> but this goes to show retribution is a bit. Right? You see, it all came full circle. If only they had had those prices, they would see? still be here today. But there was always somebody in the crowd that was objecting to that. So you personally would like to see that happen, just as you were saying, it gives people at least a sense of, of where these prices are relative to what else they're looking at, right? Yes. I mean, it really, look at, this is the thing. Websites have gotten better. So our, our, you know, we talked about the fact that traffic seemed like it was on the decline before the pandemic. Once we reopen, our, our traffic in both of our showrooms has never been so high. And I know that's also true for my colleagues across the country. So I'm just beside myself with glee. The designers realized that coming in actually 
impacts and makes a difference in their business. They can touch, see, feel, be inspired, bring their clients in. We also know that they're doing more work digitally. So people will print our tear sheets up and bring them in. And I do believe that if we had prices listed, that it would help streamline their process so that they could either know that they're in or out and not waste their time. It would also give our, our teams an opportunity to go deeper with the designers and thereby their clients. And that's so much of it, right? Are you in or out? Does this make any right. sense for what you're looking at? Don't fall in love with this fabric if it's $500 a yard right. or whatever, and it's at right and it's out of your reach. So part of the reason that some companies tell us they're hesitant about it is the whole consumer side of it, right? So they're saying, well, is it a manufactured suggested retail price? And if so, then that price is, is very high or will seem inflated to people if that's the only price that we put out there. How do you think about that? I don't know. I just think everybody knows what net is now. I think we're just putting that down. I don't personally know, at least not in Southern California, I don't know any designers who are working on retail margins. Everybody seems right. to be working on cost plus or design fee. So if you've mm. got if you've got the net price down, then the consumer can look at it and be like, oh my gosh, I love this console. Go ahead and get it or don't even show it to me. And I think it opens it up for a more dynamic conversation just among all stakeholders in the design process. I could also be completely bananas. No, I mean, I think that would be, I mean, ridiculous to think that that sounds revolutionary, but I mean, right. I, right? But I mean, I think the idea of, of really putting net pricing down and saying, listen, we are a to the trade business. This is our customer. Here are the prices and, and here's what it is. And you've got, to your point, whatever model, markup model you have out there, you're doing cost plus or you're doing hourly. That seems to make an enormous amount of sense. The other question in that and you address this somewhat on your site, is the consumer, is the is the homeowner. And I think if I remember, you you sort of direct people to LA design concepts if right. they're right, if they're interested. So tell me about that a little bit and how that how that works. Well, you know, a couple of things. One, I'm glad I'm not crazy. So yes, let's put net pricing. <laughs> but the other thing is we are a trade showroom. We do not sell to consumers. Like maybe right. I sold to a president of Columbia TriStar in 2002 because he was like one of the most sophisticated guys and <laughs> like it was his fifth house. But the second you start talking to consumers about doing a custom table and ask them the question, will this fit through your front door? It's eyes are glazed over. We let consumers come in. We give them tear sheets. We will put retail pricing on tear sheets. If they don't have a designer, we will refer them. If they want a designer, you know, we'll let them even shop fabrics in the wings so that they can have a shopping experience. We won't give mm. them memos. We will give them a copy of their memo sheet. And we say to them, look at when you have a designer, we've got your sheet. We'll file it under your name. Come back. And across the country, there are retail outlets that are acting as conduits for trade goods to a retail consumer or for their own clients. But also you have purchasing agents uh, across the country uh, coming up. The founder of LA Design Concepts, Frank Kasheshian, we've known each other for 30 years. He used to be a designer. Mm. He knew, as we all know, that there are consumers that want access to goods and we have provided no opportunity for them to buy them. So it means that we're leaving money on the table and it means as an agent, I'm not doing the best for my suppliers to get them the best business they can. By the way, design centers have always had this. Design centers have always had a purchaser who would act as an intermediary and acquire things for consumers through the trade showroom. So it's not a new model. It's just that Frank was able to do it digitally and he interacts with a market across the country. And he's working with almost all of the trade lines. And when you look at LA Design Concepts website, he's got everybody on there. He runs a great business. He runs a smart business. He's got a great team. They know how to work with the consumer. 
We don't have to. It's smart. It's modern. And um, it provides access for really beautiful goods that might otherwise not get out to the public. And so they can they can come and sort of discover it at your showroom. And as you say, you, you don't give them memos, but they you, you can keep that sheet. And and then they, they could go on the L.A. design concepts and buy it there. And I don't know what the pricing sort of model is there, but it's available to them is the point. Right. And by the way, too, I want to say to make sure that I'm clear, it's not competing with the designers. These are people who are buying a wallpaper for a bedroom and that's all they're doing. They're buying the one desk that wife or the husband always wanted. So this is not a project. These are one-offs and they are splurging and they're buying like this one great designer thing that's going to make their house feel like a home. So I think it's in our industry's best interest to get this out there, to show the difference with retail, to say, stop buying all this P. Right. <laughs> well, that that's my message and yeah. and that and that's what I wish and I feel as though if people just had exposure to it. I mean, this has always been one of the knocks about our industry is that we just haven't gotten ourselves out there in as effective manner as we could because we weren't collectively marketing or we weren't putting ourselves out there. And so it created these opportunities for some of these big retailers. Right, exactly. But this is a way to at least get them in. And you mentioned that traffic has been strong for you. So, I mean, tell me about that traffic. Is that is that design firms coming back? Do you get do you get a lot of sort of regular street traffic where you are or not really? In, in the Pacific Design Center, we don't get any street traffic at all. We do mm-hmm. get consumers in our Laguna showroom because it's uh, the, the nature of the building, of the architecture. It's interesting because we had one of our suppliers here this week and she said, what she is really observing is designers are out shopping for projects. They're busy. They're looking for the thing they want, whether it's furniture, lighting, textiles, accessories, art, they're in the market. I feel like even when I first started in the industry, people might just go out just to tire kick or look around and maybe they didn't have a project, but this, everyone here is very serious. I feel like those days are gone, right? When Hallelujah. they would come to the... Come to- <laughs> Much, much to your delight. It's interesting, though, because the flip side of that is many designers only go to a handful of showrooms that they're familiar with, right? Yes. They're creatures of habit. Everyone has the places they go, as we all do, by the way. Sure. You know, we buy clothes where we buy clothes. So my goal as a, as a showroom operator is to try and get new people who aren't shopping with us. So we're always doing that. And then once you have them in, it's like we have a lot of products. So we really try and communicate to the designer that we have enough product for the whole project. And we do have designers that will bring floor plans in and work with the team and specify the entire house because they have access to, you know, 60 collections from very small bespoke to larger European. You know, again, if you go to Banana Republic, your wardrobe is going to look the same. If you go to RH, your house is going to look the same. But if you come to us, you're going to look like you've collected a house over time and you're going to look like you have you know, traveled and, and really been thoughtful and intentional about creating it. That's the fear I want to most put in people's minds is that thought of looking just the same. Why on earth Why? would you want it, it to look exactly the same as everybody else's? And you and you do see it so often, these these sort of RH creative Right? I yeah. It's confusing to me. You mentioned Laguna, and we should explain for listeners your other location, which is different and and where that is and and the dynamic there, because it is slightly different. Southern California is a big territory. Mm. And so we have, we've always had designers in you know, San Diego, Orange County, the desert, as we have in Las Vegas and Santa Barbara. And, and I don't know, about nine years ago, my sister and I thought, you know, 
it's so far for people to drive from San Diego or Orange County. If we had a showroom, would that make a difference? And we had some designers saying, open, open, open. It was like that Costco <laughs> commercial, open, open, <laughs> open. And so um, we did some recon and we decided, you know what, what, what the heck, let's just do it. Um, it makes it sound so easy. What the heck? Let's just do it. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, let's just, let's do, just it. do it. Yeah. Um, it was it was great fun. It really was a fun project because I'd been in the business long enough to really know what I was doing. Um, mm. So we opened in the Laguna Design Center seven years ago, and it's just been a blast. We the business is, is strong. Uh, the designers appreciate they don't have to drive here. You know, I go down before the pandemic, I went down a lot more. Now that the world is more open, I'm going down about every two weeks and it's steady traffic all day. Designers bring in their floor plans. Um, we're doing a business down there that, that look, if we weren't doing business, we wouldn't stay there. And it's a resource that the designers in those territories are using because they can run in and they can shop a fabric and they don't have to make a day of it. They can come in in their workout gear after yoga spend an hour. And then the other thing that, that we do is I, you know, host people. So I'll take people on tours and share the stories of our suppliers because they're so wonderful, at least to me, and, you know, share the product we have because we have workhorse fabrics for 35 bucks. And then we've got, you know, like extraordinary cashmere's from CNC Milano and, and De La Quonia for, you know, a mortgage payment. So it's like, you know, <laughs> what do you, we've got everything in between. So I host them, we tour around, we have firms in, at least once a week in Los Angeles and probably every other week in Laguna to really share the story. But yes, all that to say Laguna has been a great, a great adjunct to the business and we're thrilled that we did it. Well, that, that's great. And as you say, it is such a big territory. So it's, it's wonderful that you can hit those people in all those different locations. You mentioned that there are these conversations that are forever coming around, right? And one of the things that I appreciated that you said to me the other day when we spoke was there will always be multi-line showrooms in the same way that there'll always be art galleries because right. we are right because we are essentially very similar in in nature and that we are supporting artisans and and creative people and this is a place to to show them and to grow them oftentimes that these lines start off very small and and if successful can can grow to be quite a sizable part of your business how do you think about that mix of how much is sort of new young up-and-coming business that you're nurturing versus your your mature lines so the other part of being an entrepreneur and being successful i suppose is intuition and it's really mm. paying attention to the gut which i think uh, you know once we turn seven we stop paying attention to our intuition so in terms of the lines we've represented for a long time they've grown so much so you look at june ho you know fuse lighting like we've all been together for 21 years they've they've all become you know they're mature players so then what we we do something different with them so you know june has his own gallery right now we've just launched his japan collection as i say with rosemary she's got her space then with new ones we bring them on and we make sure we give them you know space to communicate their philosophy to the world and then unroll all of the um the initiatives that we do with any of our lines you know social media print uh, advertising, social, social dilemma, right? Social, social. <laughs> it's like all the different ways we do it. Instagram, uh, my team is really great about sending out packages regularly. So we just sort of do it. And our commitment when we bring on a line is we're going to grow you. And we recently brought on a new collection and it's just starting and it's very small. And, um, and they were concerned about getting lost. We really liked each other. We wanted to work together. And, 
he called some suppliers of mine that he knows that I had forgotten that I launched and they've become really big players in the industry. I was like, oh yeah, we did launch them. So we lovering on the new ones because that's part of the story also. Yes, longevity and history and seeing this, this uh, sense of, you know, it's like, you know, it's like time in, you know, it's like time in, you're, you've, you've got it. But then yeah. also these new artists and showcasing a new voice and a new creativity and giving a new generation a, a place at the table. And that's why I think multi-lines are going to be, be around for as long as we have design. We're taking a quick break to remind designers about bensolmoney.com's exclusive trade program. With generous designer pricing, bensolmoney.com has an incredible selection of in-stock and ready-to-ship luxury furniture, rugs, decor, and original art, including oversized offerings. A custom design atelier allows you to create the perfect piece for your next project. Sign up today for a trade account at bensolmoney.com. And now, back to the show. What has to change, in your opinion, for the multi-line model to be sustainable? When we talk to a lot of people around multi-line spaces, the rents keep going up and, and often the rents in design centers are, are quite sizable relative to when you first started and it was $9,000 a month. And Oh, man. Right? right? only... But saying that, is the rent even the biggest issue for you? I mean, is, is that the biggest threat? Are there, are there other issues that are an even bigger threat to the multi-line model that, that are more top of mind for you? You know, it's, it's a complex equation. I believe that the, most of my colleagues are paying retail rents in a wholesale environment. So that mm. is absolutely impactful. In order to maintain the level of service that luxury consumers are used to, then you have to bring on the right kind of team. That's a very costly investment. So you've got two fixed costs that you really don't have a lot of control over. So, you know, I've spoken to so many of my colleagues in Los Angeles, you know, do we move? I know in Florida, a bunch of uh, showrooms got together and they moved into a wholesale area and it's just super smart. I think when you look at some territories like Southern California, it becomes challenging because how far are people going to drive for anything? The reason we open Laguna is because driving is a challenge. So where can you open where it's a rent more commensurate with the business and still be uh, attractive to the designers and their clients? And then with the team, it's, you know, to have good people, you got to pay. So those are two things we have nothing to do about it. I think it goes back to running a smart business. So it's making sure, for example, profit per square foot is making mm. sure that the size of the space and what you're selling works out. So I've got some friends who have smaller showrooms. I've got some friends who have bigger showrooms and I'm sure we're all running on the same formula. So it's, I have friends who have reduced their spaces. So I assume profit per square foot change. I have friends who increase their spaces. So you just see, you know, in our businesses, the multi you see contraction of space and increase the space over time. And I think it's just, I think that's where we manage it. It's like, what are we doing about space and team and where do we put the money so that we can stay in business for generations and be competitive and bring a new product to the marketplace. So you mentioned Florida where a lot of them are moving out. They, a lot of the companies moved out of the merchandise market right. in Chicago, right? And, and and tried to do the same thing. And it, and it sounds like they've been successful and, and certainly the the rent number changing helps helps a great deal but but are enough people going to go where everybody's moved to and and do, and do you feel that the La Cienega experiment do you feel that that 
was a success for for people? Did it ever sort of make you think, yeah, what would that be like if we were part of that community? You know, we did. We looked at we looked at going in the street, and for what we do for now, the building is really the place to be. We're, we're mm. We have a big space. There's no, there's no place. You know, it's like I spoke about it with with other big colleagues in in the building, and it's sort of there was no place that would accommodate us. It's uh, Macy's and Gimbel's really existed because of each other. So you got to be near your friends. So it's mm. like a shoe store is more successful when it opens up near another shoe store. So us leaving on our own, I think, would be detrimental. I think that us moving with colleagues could be very successful. So you know, we can't tell what the future holds. I never thought. I'd be here 21 years later being interviewed on a screen. So, you know, where does the business go? Where does the business go? Well, so I feel as if I always present the perspective of the lines that are, that are showing in the, in the multi-line showroom and sort of voicing what they would like to see happen. What do you want the lines that are hanging in your showroom to better understand or what would be helpful to you that they could be doing a better job of to sort of put it around on the other foot? You know what? We talk about it here a lot. And I think empathy. I think that as a middleman, we really have to be empathetic to the designers that they're dealing with very demanding clients who are spending a lot of money and don't understand the process. And so we really have to be empathetic to the designers. Equally, we have to be empathetic to our suppliers, especially right now, because there is supply chain issues, there's logistic issues, and they're beyond anyone's control. You know, I had a problem the day. We had a designer, and she had written to a manufacturer that she wanted some information, but then she was like, I don't want to work with Thomas Lavin. And I was like, well, this never happens. So I went through. Our notes are so detailed that I saw that we had sold her a fabric six years ago, and it arrived smelly. And um, like you would, you dive, you saw our notes, Dennis. They're amazing. <laughs> so like every conversation that we had, my calling, we paid to have it sent out to be dry cleaned. But I think, I think that empathy across the board is like understanding that, at least from where I'm sitting, nobody's trying to be unkind or unpleasant. Like we're all just, you know, as somebody said, I'm just trying to get by in life, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is it is a time, obviously, where great empathy is is called for, and so often designers talk about it's not a health crisis, it's it's not a national emergency, but it, sometimes the clients too get get quite uh, quite irate, and people do have high expectations these days for speed at which things can can happen, and and we just know that they can't right now. You've done a little bit of uh, your your own product line in, in introducing some fabrics. Tell me briefly about, about that. And does it make you want to do more of your own product? You know, so back to your earlier question, how do multi-lines stay sort of relevant and stay in business? There was an article that I read in Business of Home that David Webster was interviewed for, who we remember so fondly. And mm. he said that showrooms who didn't have their own product may not be sustainable. Now, I think we would remain sustainable, but you know, we had a big line that we nurtured from the beginning. We launched it in America, and it's like sending a college kid off to school. They graduated from us, so they left and you know, allowed us to rethink the business. What does it look like as an agent? What does it look like for our longevity? And we realized that you know, getting in the fabric business at the basics level could make sense for us. So my sister and I tried going into the outdoor stocking a while ago, and that became a whole different business. It's like investing in stocking fabrics. I have the utmost respect for all of my <laughs> my fabric manufacturers because it's a very heavy 
commitment. So we're just, we're going into, we're starting off with planes, not fancy, and just seeing mm -hmm. how it goes, like things that, that we might not have, or things that'll just give us another opportunity to have a different kind of conversation, and looking at Thomas Lavin in a different way, and seeing how, how it goes. As I look across the spectrum, really all of our colleagues have something where they've got their own furniture lines, um, whether they've got their own furniture and fabric lines. And I mean, the, the doyen and apotheosis of all this is Holly Hunt. And she was sure. the, the great genius in our industry and such a visionary that she really figured out every answer. I mean, she, there's not a category that Holly did not take on and make the most exquisite. So um, it was really great being part of that, watching her and knowing her and seeing that happen. Not that, by the way, I am not committing myself to Holly Hatt. It's like starting off. <laughs> none of us could. None of us could. That's a, that's a comparison that none of us could live up to. But you talk about, I mean, and, and Holly and I have talked about this in the past. I mean, to have survived Christian Lieg going out on his own and, and leaving Holly Hunt and, and coming back and developing her own line and, and, and building that up to where she actually sort of surpassed the sales was one of the, one of the greatest comeback stories in our, in our industry. And so, I mean, it can be, it can be devastating. And I, and I've spoken to so many multi-line showrooms that as you say, I mean, Jim Druckmann will still tell you today about A. Rudin leaving his showroom and it happened decades right. ago, right? But I mean, it can be such an emotional experience, but it also can be such a wake-up call that, oh my goodness, what what other lines do we have ourselves? Or as you, as you said about David Webster, he was always looking at how much of this is proprietary, how much of this is our, our own that we can control, and does that number need to continue to grow to make it work? Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and those, these are the business things that, you know, everyone's looking at their business in whatever arena you're playing in. And this is what we look at multi-lines. It's like, you know, we, we love, I can speak for all of my colleagues, we love being in the business. It's a very special place to be in, to be able to either discover talent and bring them to the marketplace or work with talent for so many years, even when they do leave, it's of course, it's a bummer, but it's also a testament to the work that we've done in order to bring them to the marketplace. It's, you have to keep looking at it from every angle. Interesting. So last question for you. Obviously, we're all experiencing this explosive growth right now. It's heady times. How are you thinking about managing the business, continuing to grow the business, and what level of sales you think this is really going to ultimately land in in the, in the coming year? And, and how are you thinking about it? Wow, I know. It's such a great question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> do, you, do you have the magic answer? I mean, that? wow. I mean, if I knew that, I'd be on the beach in San Tropez right now. Um, one, you know, it's going back to being a teenager, what I didn't share earlier also is like I was the, the worst spender in the world. And my father would get so pissed because he'd get these extraordinary credit card bills. So it taught me being thrifty. So even though, you know, things are rolling and we're able to reinvest and be heady, one also always has to keep a nest egg. So I think um, in 2000, it was like 2006 and seven. I know that we were just ramping up because we had just moved to the PDC and people were just like, this is the best business ever. And then they all closed. So nothing is sustainable. This growth is not going to be here forever. The way it feels like certainly we're going to be in a good place. I would say in through 2022, according to like the brains that I talked to in the, in the numbers world, articles that I read that, that are interesting and I read them in Business of Home and I've read them in other, other magazines, Wall Street Journal, is that because people were stuck at home during the pandemic and they were looking at their four walls, which were dirty and needed a paint job, 
everyone moved up a level of home furnishings from where they were before. So whatever you were buying, you went up. So I feel like with what I've read and the people I've spoken to, one of the reasons we're experiencing growth is because people are upgrading. And so my hope is that because everyone's upgrading, this might be a sort of a rebirth and a continuation of supporting artisanal work. And um, now that lead times are so long, I think people are, are used to like, yeah, it's just going to be 16 weeks and that's the way it is still faster than retail. So <laughs> I feel like usually our industry takes it in the chin when something happens. And I feel like we're poised. I feel like we still have um, inroads to make in terms of technological and communication infrastructure. But I think that just the way I experience the world now, I think we're, we're setting ourselves up for future success. And I think that people are managing their businesses differently than they did in prior booms. So you think having had the experience of the sort of Great Recession has tempered a lot of people's perhaps ex expansive thoughts about where this might go. I think so. I hope so. Certainly tempered mine. You're much more mature about money th th than you were as a young person, <laughs> as you described, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like for sure. <laughs> well, and I and I love I love the story that I, I think your grandmother told you that you you better not be borrowing any any, any money. Oh man! Pay pay, oh right? no, she was my grandmother was my <laughs> she was my great patroness. I I was like I was I was thirty dollars short on a credit card bill, so I called her and I said, "Can I borrow some money to pay my credit card bill?" And she said, "Of course you can." So I went over and she made my favorite dinner, which was rack of lamb and tomato aspic with Roquefort dressing and. We had a little bit of wine. It was just so lovely. And so as I was leaving, she said, I've got your money. And I said, thank you. And so she pulled out $30 and she looked at me. She said, don't you ever ask to borrow money from me again. I raised six sons and I'm not raising you. I got into my little VW bug and I cried. <laughs> and, um, you know, two weeks later when I got my paycheck for my typing job, I called her. I said, I've got your money. And she said, fabulous. Come on over. So I went over, lovely dinner. And I went to give her the 30 bucks. She said, you can keep it. She's like, but don't ever get into debt. So lessons from grandma and dad, right? And and that stuck with you and served you so well all, all, all these years in your business. Oh, yeah. No, she's always with me. Not, and it, yeah. what did Shakespeare say? Neither a borrower nor a lender be. Indeed. Give me the willies. <laughs> well, Thomas, it's it's been an absolute pleasure to spend time with you. Thank you so much. So much fun. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Caroline Burke and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.